The Echo of a Mutiny Part 1. Death on the Girdler Popular belief ascribes to infants and the lower animals certain occult powers of divining character denied to the reasoning faculties of the human adult, and is apt to accept their judgment as finally overriding the pronouncements of mere experience. Whether this belief rests upon any foundation other than the universal love of paradox, it is unnecessary to inquire. It is very generally entertained, especially by ladies of a certain social status, and by Mrs. Thomas Solly, it was loyally maintained as an article of faith. Yes, she moralised, it's surprising how they know the little children and the dumb animals, but they do, there's no deceiving them. You can tell the gold from the dross in a moment, they can, and they reads the human art like a book. Wonderful, I call it. I suppose it's instinct. Having delivered herself of this priceless gem of philosophic thought, she thrust her arms, elbow deep, into the foaming washtop and glanced admiringly at her lodger as he sat in the doorway, supporting on one knee an obese infant of eighteen months, and on the other a fine tabby cat. James Brown was an elderly seafaring man, small and slight in build, and in manner suave, insinuating and perhaps a trifle sly, but he had all the sailor's love of children and animals, and the sailor's knack of making himself acceptable to them, for, as he sat with an empty pipe wobbling in the grasp of his toothless gums, the baby beamed with humid smiles, and the cat rolled into a fluffy ball, and purring like a stocking loom, worked its fingers ecstatically, as if it were trying on a new pair of gloves. It must be more lonely out at the lighthouse, Mrs. Solly resumed. Only three men, and never a neighbour to speak to, and Lord, what a muddle they must be in with no woman in to look after them and keep them tidy. But you won't be overworked, Mr. Brown, in these long days, daylight till past nine o'clock. I don't know what you'll do to pass the time. Always shall find plenty to do, I expect, said Brown, what with cleaning the lamps and glasses and painting up the ironwork. And it reminds me, he added, looking round at the clock, that time's getting on, high water at half-past ten, and here it's gone eight o'clock. Mrs. Solly, acting on the hint, began rapidly to fish out the washed garments and wring them out into the form of short ropes. Then, having dried her hands on her apron, she relieved Brown of the protesting baby. Your room will be ready for you, Mr. Brown, said she, when your turn comes for a spell ashore, and man glad me and Tom will be to see you back. Thank you, Mrs. Sally, ma'am, answered Brown, tenderly placing the cat on the floor. You won't be more glad than what I will. He shook hands warmly with his landlady, kissed the baby, chucked the cat under the chin, and picking up his little chest by his basket, swung it onto his shoulder and strode out of the cottage. His way lay across the marshes, and, like the ships in the offing, he shaped his course by the twin towers of Reculver that stood up grotesquely on the rim of the land, and as he trod the springy turf, Tom Solly's fleecy charges looked up at him with vacant stares and valedictory bleatings. Once, at a dyke gate, he paused to look back at the fair Kentish landscape, at the grey tower of St. Nicholas at Wade, peeping above the trees, and the faraway mill at Sar, whirling slowly in the summer breeze, and above all, at the solitary cottage where, for a brief spell in his stormy life, he had known the homely joys of domesticity and peace. Well, that was over for the present, and the lighthouse loomed ahead. With a half-sigh he passed through the gate and walked on towards Reculver. Outside the whitewashed cottages with their official black chimneys, a petty officer of the Coast Guard was adjusting the halyards of the flagstaff. He looked round as Brown approached and hailed them cheerily. "'Here you are, Vint,' said he. "'All figged out on your new togs, too. But we're in a bit of difficulty, do you see? 
We've got to pull up to Whitstable this morning, so I can't send a man out with you, and I can't spare a boat. Have I got to swim out, then? asked Brown. The Coast Guard grinned. Not in them new clothes, mate, he answered. No, but there's old Willet's boat. He isn't using her today. He's going over to Minster to see his daughter, and he'll let us have the loan of the boat. But there's no one to go with you, and I'm responsible to Willet. Well, what about it? asked Brown of the deep-sea sailor's usually misplaced confidence in his power to handle a sailing boat. You think I can't manage a tub of a boat? Me what's used to the sea since I was a kid of ten. Yes, said the Coast Guard, but who's to bring her back? Why, the man I'm going to relieve, answered Brown. He don't want to swim no more than what I do. The Coast Guard reflected with his telescope pointed at a passing barge. Well, I suppose it'll be all right, concluded. But it's a pity they couldn't send the tender round. However, if you undertake to send the boat back, we'll get her afloat. It's time you're off. He strolled away to the back of the cottages, whence he presently returned with two of his mates, and the four men proceeded along the shore to where Willett's boat lay just above high watermark. The Emily was a beamy craft of the type locally known as half-share skiff, solidly built of oak with varnished planking and fitted with main and mizzen lugs. She was a good handful for four men, and as she slid over the soft chalk rocks with a hollow rumble, the coast guards debated the advisability of lifting out the bags of shingle with which she was ballasted. However, she was at length dragged down, ballast and all, to the water's edge, and then while Brown stepped the mainmast, the petty officer gave him his directions. What you've got to do, said he, is to make use of the flood tide. Keep her nose nor'east, and with this trickler nor'westly breeze, you ought to make the lighthouse in one board. Anyway, don't let her get east of the lighthouse, or when the ebb sets in, you'll be in a fix. To these admonitions, Brown listened with jaunty indifference as he hoisted the sails and watched the incoming tide creep over the level shore. Then the boat lifted on the gentle swell. Putting out an oar, he gave a vigorous shove-off that sent the boat onto its pintles. He seated himself and calmly belayed the mainsheet. There he goes, growled the Coast Guard, making fast his sheet. They will do it. He invariably did it himself. And that's how accidents happen. I hope old Willet will see his boat back all right. He stood for some time, watching the dwindling boat as it sidled across the smooth water. Then he turned and followed his mates towards the station. Out on the southwestern edge of the girdler's sand, just inside the two-fathom line, the spindle-shanked lighthouse stood astraddle on its long screw piles like some uncouth red-bodied wading bird. It was now nearly half flood tide. The highest shoals were long since covered, and the lighthouse rose above the smooth sea, as solitary as a slaver becalmed in the middle passage. In the gallery outside the lantern were two men, the entire staff of the building, of whom one sat huddled in a chair with his left leg propped up with pillows on another, while his companion rested a telescope on the rail and peered at the faint grey line of the distant land and the two tiny points that marked the twin spires of Reculver. Don't see any signs of the boat, Harry, said he. The other man groaned. I shall lose the tide, he complained. But then there's another day gone. They can put you down to Birchington and put you in the train, said the first man. Don't want no trains, growled the invalid. The boat will be bad enough. I suppose there's nothing coming our way, Tom. Tom turned his face eastward and shaded his eyes. There's a brig coming across the tide from the north, he said. Looks like a collier. He pointed his telescope at the approaching vessel and added, She's got two new cloths in her upper foretopsail, one on each leech. The other man sat up eagerly. What's her trysail like, Tom? he asked. Can't see it, replied Tom. Yes, I can now. It's tanned. Why, that'll be the old utopia. Harry, she's the only brig I know who's got a tanned trysail. Look here, Tom, exclaimed the other. If that's the utopia, she's going to my home, and I'm going aboard of her. Captain Mockett will give me a passage, I know. You oughtn't to go until you're relieved, you know, Barnet, said Tom doubtfully. It's against regulations to leave your station. Regulations be blowed, exclaimed Barnet. My leg's more to me than the regulations. I don't want to be a cripple all my life. Besides, I'm no good here, and this new chap Brown will be coming out presently. 
You run up the signal, Tom, like a good comrade now the brig. Well, it's your lookout, said Tom. I don't mind saying that. If I was in your place, I should cut off home and see a doctor if I get the chance. He sauntered off to the flag locker, and selecting the two code flags, deliberately toggled them onto the halyards. Then as the brig swept up within range, he hoisted the little balls of bunting to the flagstaff head, and jerked the halyards when the two flags blew out, making the signal need assistance. Promptly, a coal-soiled answering pennant soared to the brig's main truck. Less promptly, the collier went about, and turning her nose downstream, slowly drifted stern forwards towards the lighthouse. Then a boat slid out through her gangway, and a couple of men plied the oars vigorously. Lighthouse, Loy, roared one of them as the boat came within hail. What's amiss? Harry Barnett has broken his leg, shouted the lighthouse keeper, and he wants to know if Captain Mockett will give him passage to Whitstable. The boat turned back to the brig, and after a brief and bellowed consultation, once more pulled towards the lighthouse. Skipper says yes, roared the sailor when he was within a shot. And he says look alive, because he, he don't want to miss his tide. The injured man heaved a sigh of relief. That's good news, said he, though how the blazes I'm going to get down the ladder in more than I can tell. What do you say, Jeffries? I say you better let me lower you with a tackle. You can sit in the bite of a rope and I'll give you a line to steady yourself with. Oh, I'll do, Tom, said Barnet. but for the Lord's sake, pay out the full rope gently. The arrangements were made so quickly that by the time the boat was fast alongside, everything was in readiness, and a minute later, the injured man, dangling like a gigantic spider from the end of the tackle, slowly descended, cursing volubly to the accompaniment of the creaking of the blocks. His chest and kit bag followed, and as soon as these were unhooked from the tackle, the boat pulled off to the brig, which was now slowly creeping, stern foremost, past the lighthouse. The sick man was hoisted up the side, his chest handed up after him, and then the brig was put on her course due south across the Kentish flats. Geoffrey stood on the gallery, watching the receding vessel, and listening to the voices of her crew as they grew small and weak in the increasing distance. Now that his gruff companion was gone, a strange loneliness had fallen on the lighthouse. The last of the homeward-bound ships had long since passed up the Prince's Channel, and left the calm sea desolate and blank. The distant buoys, showing as tiny black dots on the glassy surface, and the spindly shapes of the beacons which stood up from invisible shoals, but emphasised the solitude of the empty sea, and the tolling of the bell buoy on the shivering sand, stealing faintly down the wind, sounded weird and mournful. The day's work was already done, the lenses were polished, the lamps had been trimmed, and the little motor that worked the foghorn had been cleaned and oiled. There were several odd jobs, it is true, waiting to be done, as there always are in a lighthouse, but just now Jeffreys was not in a working humour. A new comrade was coming into his life today, a stranger with whom he was to be shut up alone, night and day, for a month on end, and whose temper and tastes and habits might mean for him pleasant companionship, or jangling and discord without end. Who was this man Brown? What had he been? What was he like? These were the questions that passed, naturally enough, through the lighthouse keeper's mind, and distracted him from his usual thoughts and occupations. Presently a speck on the landward horizon caught his eye. He snatched up the telescope eagerly to inspect it. Yes, it was a boat, but not the coast guard's cutter for which he was looking. Evidently, a fisherman's boat, and with only one man in it. He laid down the telescope with a sigh of disappointment, and, filling his pipe, leaned on the rail with a dreary eye bent on the faint grey line of the land. Three long years had he spent in this dreary solitude, so repugnant to his active, restless nature. Three blank, interminable years with nothing to look back on but the endless succession of summer calms, stormy nights, and the chilly fogs of winter, when the unease steamers hooted from the void, 
and the foghorn bellowed its hoarse warning. Why had he come to this godforsaken spot, and why did he stay when the wide world called to him? And then memory painted him a picture on which his mind's eye had often looked before, and which once again arose before him, shutting out the vision of the calm sea and the distant land. It was a brightly coloured picture. It showed a cloudless sky brooding over the deep blue tropic sea, and in the middle of the picture, seesawing gently on the quiet swell, a white-painted bark. Her sails were clawed up untidily, her swinging yards jerked at the slack braces, and her untended wheel revolved to and fro to the oscillations of the rudder. She was not a derelict, for more than a dozen men were on her deck, but the men were all drunk, and mostly asleep, and there was never an officer among them. Then he saw the interior of one of her cabins, the chart rack, the tell-tale compass, and the chronometers marked it as the captain's cabin. In it were four men, and two of them lay dead on the deck, while for the other two one was a small, cunning-faced man who was at the moment kneeling beside one of the corpses to wipe a knife upon its coat. The fourth man was himself. Again he saw the two murderers stealing off in a quarter-boat as the bark with her drunken crew drifted towards the spouting surf of a river bar. He saw the ship melt away in the surf like an icicle in the sunshine, and later two shipwrecked mariners picked up in an open boat and set ashore at an American port. That was why he was here, because he was a murderer. The other scoundrel, Amos Todd, had turned Queen's evidence and denounced him, and he had barely managed to escape. Since then he had hidden himself from the great world, and here he must continue to hide, not from the law, for his person was unknown now that his shipmates were dead, but from the partner of his crime. It was the fear of Todd that had changed him from Geoffrey Rourke to Tom Jeffreys, and had sent him to the girdler, a prisoner for life. Todd might die, might even now be dead, but he would never hear of it, would never hear the news of his release. He roused himself, and once more pointed his telescope at the distant boat. She was considerably nearer now, and seemed to be heading out towards the lighthouse. Perhaps the man in her was bringing a message. At any rate, there was no sign of the coast guard's cutter. He went in, and betaking himself to the kitchen, busied himself with a few simple preparations for dinner. But there was nothing to cook, for there remained the cold meat from yesterday's cooking, which he could make sufficient with some biscuit in place of potatoes. He felt restless and unstrung. The solitude irked him, and the everlasting wash of the water among the piles jarred on his nerves. When he went out again into the gallery, the ebb tide had set in strongly, and the boat was little more than a mile distant, and now through the glass he could see that the man in her was the uniform cap of the Trinity House. Then the man must be his future comrade, Brown. But this was very extraordinary. What were they to do with the boat? There was no one to take her back. The breeze was dying away. As he watched the boat, he saw the man lower the sail and take to his oars, and something of hurry in the way the man pulled over the gathering tide caused Jeffreys to look round the horizon. And then for the first time, he noticed a bank of fog creeping up from the east, and already so near that the beacon on the east girdler had faded out of sight. He hastened in to start the little motor that compressed the air for the foghorn, and waited a while to see that the mechanism was running properly. Then as the deck vibrated to the roar of the horn, he went out once more into the gallery. The fog was now all round the lighthouse, and the boat was hidden from view. He listened intently. The enclosing wall of vapour seemed to have shut out sound as well as vision. At intervals, the horn bellowed its note of warning, and then all was still, save the murmur of the water among the piles below, and infinitely faint and far away, the mournful tolling of the bell on the shivering sand. At length there came to his ear 
the muffled sound of oars working in the tholes, then the very edge of the circle of grey water that was visible. The boat appeared through the fog, pale and spectral, with a shadowy figure pulling furiously. The horn emitted a hoarse growl. The man looked round, perceived the lighthouse, and altered his course towards it. Jeffreys descended the iron stairway, and walking along the lower gallery, stood at the head of the ladder, earnestly watching the approaching stranger. Already he was tired of being alone. The yearning for human companionship had been growing ever since Barnet left. But what sort of comrade was this stranger who was coming into his life, and coming to occupy so dominant a place in it? The boat swept down swiftly athwart the hurrying tide. Nearer it came, and yet nearer, and still Jeffreys could catch no glimpse of his new comrade's face. At length it came fairly alongside, and bumped against the fender-posts. The stranger whisked in an oar, and grabbed the rung of the ladder, and Jeffreys dropped a coil of rope into the boat, and still the man's face was hidden. Jeffreys leaned out over the ladder, and watched him anxiously, as he made fast the rope, unhooked the sail from the traveller, and unstepped the mast. When he had set all in order, the stranger picked up a small chest, and, swinging it over his shoulder, stepped onto the ladder. Slowly, by reason of his encumbrance, he mounted, rung by rung, with never an upward glance, and Jeffreys gazed down at the top of his head with growing curiosity. At last he reached the top of the ladder, and Jeffreys stooped to lend him a hand. Then for the first time he looked up, and Jeffreys started back with a blanched face. "'God almighty!' he gasped. "'It's Amos Todd!' As the newcomer stepped on the gallery, the foghorn emitted a roar like that of some hungry monster. Jeffreys turned abruptly without a word and walked to the stairs, followed by Todd. The two men ascended with never a sound but the hollow clank of their footsteps on the iron plates. Silently, Jeffreys stalked into the living room, and as his companion followed, he turned and motioned to the latter to set down his chest. "'You ain't much of a talker, mate,' said Todd, looking round the room in some surprise. "'Ain't you going to say good morning? We're going to be good comrades, I hope. I'm Jim Brown, the new hand I am. What might your name be?' Jeffreys turned on him suddenly and led him to the window. "'Look at me carefully, Amos Todd,' he said sternly, "'and then ask yourself what my name is.' At the sound of his voice, Todd looked up with a start and turned pale as death. "'Can't be,' he whispered. "'It can't be Jeff Rook.' The other man laughed harshly and leaned forward, said in a low voice, "'Hast thou found me, O mine enemy?' "'Don't say that,' exclaimed Todd. "'Don't call me your enemy, Jeff.' Lord knows, but I'm glad to see you, that I've never known you without your beard and with that grey hair. I've been to blame, Jeff, and I know it, but it ain't no use raking up old grudges. Let bygones be bygones, Jeff, and let us be pals as we used to be. He wiped his face with his handkerchief and watched his companion apprehensively. Sit down, said Rourke, pointing to a shabby, rep-covered armchair. Sit down and tell me what you've done with all that money. You blew it all. I suppose you wouldn't be here. Robbed, Jeff, answered Todd. Robbed of every penny. Oh, that was an unfortunate affair, that job on board the old sea flower. But it's over and done with, and we'd best forget it. They're all dead but us, Jeff, so we're safe enough, so long as we keep our mouths shut, all at the bottom of the sea, and the best place for them too. Yes, Rourke replied fiercely. That's the best place for your shipmates when they know too much. At the bottom of the sea, or swinging at the end of a rope. He paced up and down the little room with rapid strides, and each time that he approached Todd's chair... The latter shrank back with an expression of alarm. Don't sit there staring at me, said Rourke. Why don't you smoke or do something? Todd hastily produced a pipe from his pocket, and having filled it from a moleskin pouch, 
stuck it in his mouth while he searched for a match. Apparently he carried his matches loose in his pocket, for he presently brought one forth, a red-headed match, which, when he struck it on the wall, lighted with a pale blue flame. He applied it to his pipe, sucking in his cheeks, while he kept his eyes fixed on his companion. Walk, meanwhile, halted in his walk to cut some shavings from a cake of hard tobacco with a large clasp-knife, and as he stood he gazed with frowning abstraction at Todd. The pipe stopped, said the latter, sucking ineffectually at the mouthpiece. Have you got such a thing as a piece of wire, Jeff? No, I haven't, replied Rourke. Not up here. I'll get a bit from the store presently. Here, take this pipe till you can clean your own. I've got another in the rack there. The sailor's natural hospitality, overcoming for a moment, his animosity. He thrust the pipe that he had just filled towards Todd, who took it with a mumbled thank you, and an anxious eye on the open knife. On the wall beside the chair was a roughly carved pipe rack containing several pipes, one of which Rock lifted out, and as he leaned over the chair to reach it, Todd's face went several shades paler. Well, Jeff, he said after a pause, while Rock cut a fresh fill of tobacco, are we going to be pals same as what we used to be? Rock's animosity lighted up afresh. Am I going to be pals with the man that tried to swear away my life? He said sternly, and after a pause he added, that wants thinking about, that does, and meantime I must go and look at the engine. When Rourke had gone, the new hand sat, with the two pipes in his hands, reflecting deeply. Abstractly, he struck the fresh pipe into his mouth, and, dropping the stopped one into the rack, felt for a match. Still with an air of abstraction, he lit the pipe, and having smoked for a minute or two, rose from the chair, and began softly to creep across the room, looking about him and listening intently. At the door he paused to look out into the fog, and then, having again listened attentively, he stepped on tiptoe out onto the gallery, and along towards the stairway. Of a sudden the voice of Rourke brought him up with a start. "'Hello, Todd! Where are you off to?' "'I'm just going down to make the boat secure,' was the reply. "'Never you mind about the boat,' said Rourke. "'I'll see to her.' "'Right oh, Jeff,' said Todd, still edging towards the stairway. "'But I say, mate, where's the other man, the man that I'm to relieve?' There ain't any other man, replied Walk. He went off aboard a collier. Todd's face suddenly became grey and haggard. And there's no one here but us two, he gasped. And then, with an effort to conceal his fear, he asked, But he's going to take the boat back. We'll see about that presently, replied Walk. You get along in and unpack your chest. He came out on the gallery as he spoke, with a lowering frown on his face. Todd cast a terrified glance at him, and then turned and ran for his life towards the stairway. Come back, roared Rourke, springing forward along the gallery. But Todd's feet were already clattering down the iron steps. By the time Rourke reached the head of the stairs, the fugitive was near the bottom, but here in his haste he stumbled, barely saving himself from the handrail, and when he recovered his balance, Rourke was upon him. Todd darted to the head of the ladder, but as he grasped the stanchion, his pursuer seized him by the collar. In a moment he had turned with his hand under his coat. There was a quick blow, a loud curse from Rourke, an answering yell from Todd, and a knife fell spinning through the air and dropped into the forepeak of the boat below. You murderous little devil, said Rourke in an ominously quiet voice, with his bleeding hand gripping his captive by the throat. Andy with your knife as ever, eh? Say so you were off to give information, were you? I wasn't, Jeff, replied Todd in a choking voice. I wasn't, sell me, God. Let go, Jeff. Don't mean a while, but I was only... With a sudden wrench, he freed one hand and struck out frantically at his captor's face, but Rourke warded off the blow, and grasping the other wrist, gave a violent push, and let go. Todd staggered backward a few paces along the staging, 
bringing up at the extreme edge, and here for a sensible time he stood with wide-open mouth and starting eyeballs, swaying and clutching wildly at the air. Then with a shrill scream he toppled backwards and fell, striking a pile in his descent and rebounding into the water. In spite of the audible thump of his head on the pile, he was not stunned, for when he rose to the surface he struck out vigorously, uttering short, stifled cries for help. Rourke watched him with set teeth and quickened breath, but made no move. Smaller and still smaller grew the head with its little circle of ripples swept away on the swift ebb tide, and fainter the bubbling cries that came across the smooth water. At length, as the small black spot began to fade in the fog, the drowning man, with a final effort, raised his head clear of the surface and sent a last, despairing shriek towards the lighthouse. The foghorn sent back an answering bellow. The head sank below the surface and was seen no more. And in the dreadful stillness that settled down upon the sea, there sounded faint and far away the muffled tolling of a bell. Rourke stood for some minutes immovable, wrapped in thought. Presently the distant hoot of a steamer's whistle aroused him. The ebb-tide shipping was beginning to come down, and the fog might lift at any moment. And there was the boat still alongside. He must be disposed of at once. No one had seen her arrive, and no one must see her made fast to the lighthouse. Once get rid of the boat, and all traces of Todd's visit would be destroyed. He ran down the ladder and stepped into the boat. It was simple. She was heavily ballasted, and would go down if she filled. He shifted some of the bags of shingle, and lifting the bottom boards, pulled out the plug. Instantly a large jet of water spouted up into the bottom. Wark looked at it critically, and, deciding that he would fill her in a few minutes, replaced the bottom boards, and having secured the mast and sail with a few turns of the sheet round a thwart to prevent them from floating away, he cast off the mooring rope and stepped on the ladder. As the released boat began to move away on the tide, he ran up and mounted to the upper gallery to watch her disappearance. Suddenly he remembered Todd's chest. It was still in the room below. With a hurried glance around into the fog, he ran down to the room and, snatching up the chest, carried it out on the lower gallery. After another nervous glance around to assure himself that no craft was in sight, he heaved the chest over the handrail, and when it fell with a loud splash into the sea, he waited to watch it float away after its owner and the sunken boat. But it never rose, and presently he returned to the upper gallery. The fog was thinning perceptibly now, and the boat remained plainly visible as she drifted away but she sank more slowly than he had expected, and presently, as she drifted farther away, he fetched the telescope and peered at her with growing anxiety. It would be unfortunate if anyone saw her. If she should be picked up here, with her plug out, it would be disastrous. He was beginning to be really alarmed. Through the glass he could see that the boat was now rolling in a sluggish, waterlogged fashion, but she still showed some inches of freeboard, and the fog was thinning every moment. Presently the blast of a steamer's whistle sounded close at hand, he looked round hurriedly, and, seeing nothing, again pointed the telescope eagerly at the dwindling boat. Suddenly he gave a gasp of relief. The boat had rolled gunwale under, had staggered back for a moment, and then rolled again, slowly, finally, with the water pouring in over the submerged gunwale. In a few more seconds she had vanished. Rourke lowered the telescope and took a heavy breath. Now he was safe. The boat had sunk unseen, but he was better than safe. He was free. His evil spirit, the standing menace of his life, was gone, and the wide world, the world of life, of action, of pleasure, called to him. In a few minutes the fog lifted. The sun shone brightly on the red-funnelled cattle-boat, whose whistle had startled him just now. 
the summer blue came back to sky and sea, and the land peeped once more over the edge of the horizon. He went in, whistling cheerfully, and stopped the motor, returned to coil away the rope that he had thrown to Todd, and when he had hoisted a signal for assistance, he went in once more to eat his solitary meal in peace and gladness. <laughs>